Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This week's recording comes from our live online member event, which saw the acclaimed genre hopping director Ben Wheatley in conversation with Total Film editor Jane Crowther. They discussed his latest film outing, a sumptuous adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, which is available on Netflix. Ben and Jane chatted about the film's use of location, its eye-catching design, its stellar cast, and Ben's new approach to the edit. Okay, um, well, congratulations on the film, Ben. It's a beautiful, sort of sumptuous version of Daphne du Maurier's classic. So I guess the question is what your thoughts were when this script by Jane Goulburn first came across your desk. Um, Obviously, it's been directed previously by someone called Alfred Hitchcock. Was there trepidation in taking that on? And, And what did you think when you saw that script? Yeah, I mean, I guess I did think it was, it would be slightly bonkers to do it. I think that was the first the first thought. Um, and then hot on the heels of that thought, before I'd read the script, I thought, well, that, that's often a reason I do stuff. Just, you know, off straight off the bat. And then I read the script and the script was great. And I think that was, you know, as, as with any project, that's the, that's, that really is the first um, port of call. And I, and I kind of, and I felt that when I, when I read it, I didn't, I had a lot of, um, preconceptions about what it was and I and and I didn't and I was wrong you know and I, and I wondered why that was you know and I, I don't know I got in my head that I'd seen the film obviously the Hitchcock version and I'd read the book but I, for some reason I'd, I'd misremembered it massively like it was some kind of dusty Victorian melodrama type thing right and, and, so, I didn't, and it was and it was very different you know I, I think it was um uh, you know, I, I'd completely misremembered the time setting for some reason. I didn't, and and once I started getting kind of reading the thirty stuff, I was, uh, that that made me excited because I wanted to do something in that period. But then, but the main thing that got me was the twists, you know, and I fell for all of the twists one after the other, and uh, and that, I thought that was really that was interesting. That I didn't, I couldn't remember them, but it was also interesting, in, you know, in the, in the sense that they were so modern, you know, and that the the the, the and the idea of the book, which wasn't necessarily translated into the Hitchcock film was that the that and was missing from the Hitchcock version was that the um, Maxim de Winter was actually a murderer you know and and I think that was that was quite a shock to me it was a shock that he didn't like Rebecca much and it was a shock <laughs> he was a murderer and I was like wow that's really brilliant that you would that that you would morally pull the rug underneath the audience so heavily and I thought that, that was my the beginning of the journey into making it really yeah, we've just got a question actually that's that's pertinent to this as well. Um, asking um, from Jill Nichols, um, what dealings you had to do with the Daphne du Maurier estate when you sort of started work on this? Were they very precious about what you did with it? How did it work for you? Um, I, I was, I had the sense that they were there. I knew that they, and I was kept at arm's length from them in a way by working titles so I didn't actually deal with them directly but I knew I knew they were there and they were they were a force you know and that they they had um you know their own thoughts about what was going on with the property and they're looking after the property property and developing all sorts of other um de Maurier stuff but the actual the actual reality of working with them was great you know I got they came on set and chatted to, to me and then they then they were really happy with the film so um, and it was a similar kind of thing, really, to the to doing High Rise and meeting uh, yeah. Beat Ballard and, and all that kind of thing. And you kind of you, you you feel that there's a connection to the past and to the to the 
and that they're the, they they are uh, you know they they kind of um the keepers of the of the material and they're protective of it but at the same time they're usually really interesting people you know and they kind of want the best for the material all the time but not in a kind of not in a manipulative way you know yeah and obviously you know, um hitchcock you, you said does cast a long shadow did you then sort of watch the film and use it as either a reference point or a jumping off point to your version? How did that sort of relationship with what we're so familiar with, with cinematically come into play with your process for preparing? No, I, I watched it, obviously, and I watched, but then I watched the other versions as well, the TV version. But mainly just for due diligence to make sure that we weren't, I mean, there's also legal issues with it because mm. the difference between the book and the film you can't use this, you can't put stuff in from the um, film version that doesn't exist in the book. So that was important to work out what that was and to separate that out. And it wasn't, and it wasn't a remake. So we weren't looking at kind of the same beats as that, uh, the original film. So, um, but I, I found that it wasn't massively helpful and it wasn't helpful to kind of dwell on it at all you know or think about it too much because it's hard enough making a film without thinking about some other multi oscar winning director <laughs> so it wasn't in the back of my mind and i think it's from a critical standpoint it's something that people fret about because they can match the two it's a quite a quick journey from going oh it's you know looking up on wikipedia and going there though there's a there's a join here but the the actual practical ins and outs of it no not really i think it would have been different if it was like what and an adaptation uh, you know a version of a film that there was no book for at all then that that would have you know that would have been really difficult i think but with but because there was a solidly a a, a book and also that the book had been quite adhered to partially in the hitchcock version so it wasn't that they brought loads of stuff to it to make it good it was already you know it was already brilliant to start with and i think that's the weird thing about the whole certainly about doing the press is the focus on hitchcock when you know, it's a it, it, he. It's almost like he wrote the book, yeah. And it's like a, and it's like a re, a, a, you know, like a colonization by some bloke director over a woman's write, uh, writing. You know, and I, I find that was interesting. But I think it's because some something to do with the kind of focus that, you know, film is quite myopic culturally, you know, and it will only talk about itself rather than look outside itself, you know. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the casting, because that's obviously your sort of first port of call. Um, and you're not a fan of auditions. You don't really like to audition people. You um, you sort of choose people based on how you feel about them. Tell us about that process and what you saw in Lily James and Army Hammer and also Kristen Scott Thomas as this trifecta working in this house. Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain level, there isn't there aren't auditions, you know, I think it depends on how big how how big the actor is and how big the director is and you can be you can demand you can demand people audition for you if you're massive but if you're but if you're dealing with actors at a certain level then you can't and it's always offered so that's a that's the thing in itself but I think that but I do think that and a lot of it I, I get a better feeling a sense of, of performance from talking to them than I do from looking at their other work because in a way you don't want what they've done previously anyway you're always trying to find something different in them for the performance rather than than a, and then then a cookie cutter version of what they've just done so um so yeah i mean in the past i've i've kind of looked at interviews and and um when people are a little less uh, a bit more off guard to have a, to try and under, you assess what they like but then there's that side of it 
but there's, there's also the kind of this the general chemistry of like can you work with someone or are they gonna or do they can they stand you <laughs> can they be yeah. in a room with you? you know and and a lot of that can only be done through it like you know they do these things what is it um chemistry test things where they get actors together to see if they look you know look, they look like it can look like a couple or whatever but i think there's as much chemistry test for directors you know you go and sit with someone and you go oh this person's all right and we get along we can have a conversation and, and there's a push and pull of ideas or oh god they don't they can't stand me <laughs> i don't think we can do this this is a nightmare yeah. so but with lily i got on really well with her and she you know um and she just in the conversations that we had I, I could tell that she was um and and she was on set um kind of completely uh she's very details based and very uh, you know obsessive and kind of you know just everything was um uh, every every pause of the of the script was scrutinized and worked over and we were lucky on this film to have a rehearsal period as well which i've never had before Yes, I was going to ask you about that because um, is that something you always do, and why do you find that process useful before you begin shooting? Well, no, I mean usually on the low budget stuff, you just can't. And if you've got a cast of more than three people, you can't get them in a room anyway. Um, so something like Free Fire, there was like nothing. There was mm. no, there wasn't even a read through for that. Um, and I was. So some of it's pragmatic like that, and some of it is like superstitious. And I don't. I always used to think that rehearsal was. I just sit there when I've done when I've done read-throughs or done rehearsals in the past. Just go, oh god, this is all the good stuff. I should be filming this, and now we have to get them to recreate it. It's a nightmare, and it'll never be as good as it was. Um, I'm not sure about that now. I kind of. I, I think on this film we had about two or three weeks of of rehearsal. And it certainly made the shoot a lot smoother because there wasn't because there are actors who like to question stuff. It wasn't the questions were sorted before we got there, and we'd we'd already it already been folded into the draft as much as anything. So that was really useful. But um, yeah, so I'm kind of I'm in two minds about it. I mean, it, there is a thing about part of my own processes of what how I like to make films is a is a is process driven. So the idea of the environment of the set and the and the trust between actors and director and the, and the and the energy of the whole thing yeah is really important to me so in a way i'm like filming the rehearsal and filming the moment as they discover it is what is happening in my mind i'm hoping but right. um I, but now i'm kind of now i've seen the other side of it i'm going oh god well maybe there is something obviously there's something in the theater tradition style of it where you actually can can investigate lots of different versions of those performances so I don't know. It swings and roundabouts, really. I think you lose a little bit of the of the the electricness of the of of the live performance when you don't when you rehearse too much. But at the same time, you you I think you calm the actors down in terms of their own self doubt, and and get you know I've often, I've had the issues with people kind of like halfway through a film going, oh my god, what am I doing? You know, and you kind of I think that would necessarily wouldn't necessarily happen if you if you rehearse. Mm. Was there, was there something you found in the process of rehearsal that sort of changed the film massively or or did it continue to evolve during shooting and then during editing? Where do you think that you actually find the film? I think it's about, there. You, with Rebecca, it would have been about concerns that we had for the structure of the script. And then we investigated those concerns and then we made small adjustments around them or we were proved right or proved wrong. So it was, and, and that would have been a tonal thing about her general 
Maxim de Winter's general crossness versus her general weakness mm. and what how angry he should be and how brutish he should be versus how how much he should acquiesce or how much he should be strong so and and there's versions I'd seen versions in the rehearsal where he was a monster and that was really informed how we worked you know and it's and it's about kind of audience um identification and where they would fall in and out of the of the movie if 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 there's moments when he's so horrible that the audience voice is just saying leave him and don't come back and then they basically will check out of the film right this doesn't make any sense and that was a but you but that is the film as well that's the story so you you, it was trying to find that balance was very complicated and was born out of rehearsal Mm -hmm. um let's talk about sort of like when you were sort of working with your hod's about sort of the process of prepping for this film. It's, it's very rich in colour, completely different to the black and white, obviously, of the Hitchcock. Um, what themes did you want to explore and what sort of points of reference did you talk to them about when you were sort of prepping? In terms of design? or the, well, I, mean, very I mean, the design is a huge part of this film. Sarah Greenwood's design, yeah. very lush and gorgeous. Um, what were you sort of going for? And um, did you use any points of reference of other films or genres or anything else? that? Not really. I didn't really look to other films. I looked to photography of the period mm. um, and fashion magazines, really. And, and we looked a lot in, at Vogue and the differences between the British Vogue and the Paris Vogue. Right. Which kind of gave us the two sides of which is fascinating when you look at the like month to month, what was going on. And I guess they would have been much harder to get hold of at that point in terms of the, the those magazines. But the British Vogue is very, very different from Paris Vogue. Obviously, it still is, I suppose. Um, but that was interesting. And then seeing colour photography of the period and seeing that there was more things in common between then and now than there are differences in many ways in terms of the... And and that helped kind of make us make make me make me feel that there wasn't it wasn't just setting it in aspic the whole thing it was actually a lot much more alive, and so we looked at that and then uh, and then I was trying to find kind of I had a lot of conversations with Sarah about the objects and like the idea a lot of it was about like structuring the having a theory for why things were there rather than what they were. You know, and a lot of, and there was conversations about the De Winters and how they were a kind of a colonial family that had taken, moved stuff from across various places that they'd been to and, and brought it back to England as they kind of pillaged their way across the globe. And that the house was a, just this kind of museum of stuff that they'd gathered. Um, and that that was part of the, the thing that was going to crush the second Mrs. De Winter because of the, it's not just Maxim's chilly behavior or Danvers even it's more of the house and it's like the weight of that family and that that was to be represented but I don't tend to use film as a reference itself because it's it's a bit like dropping a soundtrack on something from something else you kind of you end up with the other film on top of your film and yeah you've got the film and the context of the time of its release on top of what you're trying to do and it and it and it, it it's quite um cloying you know it's difficult so um so that was that was it and then in terms of like what i said to laurie rose at dop we, we talked a bit we had we'd had a similar set of conversations for high rise which is another period movie and whether or not you should replicate the, the style of the time 
you know, and with high rise, it's easier because it's 70s stuff. So you can go for 70s lenses and whatnot. And, you know, do we shoot on film? Do we not? And, the, and, and, and that conversation had been borne out that, no, we're, we're, we're living in the moment of now. You know, we are modern filmmakers and we move the camera in a modern way. Right. Um, and so we'll carry on doing that and, and trust our own instincts of, what, of how, how we work and not try and assume a style in that respect. But having said that, this film had come off the back of me doing a load of TV in, um, in LA. And in that, I'd been really working on kind of blocking and um, masters um, in a way that isn't in the other movies, you know. So I brought a lot of that style um, back to back to Rebecca so you see that in some of the scenes where a bit they're a bit more classical in the time in the in the um camera movement yeah um just a quick question from Evan Pugh here who says how much has the budget impacted the style of this film um obviously this has probably got a bigger budget than you've previously worked with did that help hinder change things budget's tricky because it a lot of the things that are expensive don't necessarily help you out on the day I mean, in many ways, like Colin Burstead, the film I did before was, you know, it's so much freer because you can just point the camera anywhere and just you, mm. you can you can film at the speed of thought when you're doing that stuff, which is which is a really interesting way of working. And it feels. I found that as well. Yeah, that you basically you take two steps forwards and three steps back all the time in terms of you've got more money, but you, you've got less time to do stuff because everything takes longer. Um so it, it impacts it in a, in, a, in a sort of a negative way, really. Um, it means that you don't have to have conversations about, it opens up a whole le new level of conversation, which is you have control over art department, you have control over lighting, which you might not necessarily have. You get to have cranes and steady cams and, and, and extra bits of crew. But it, it kind of, then it pulls back on other things where you can't just go, oh, we're going to go over there, we're going to go do this, we're going to do that. So... Um, I think I think superficially it looks grander, but then it's because we were shooting in amazing locations and or, or had like a large budget in terms of art department. Yeah. But the actual day to day coverage on the on the floor is not massively different from it's not different from high rise at all. Um, right. uh, and it would be similar to Free Fire, I suppose, or to Doctor Who or any of those kinds of things. But it's you don't I, I, I didn't feel like I had loads of time. Right. Yeah. Know. And that's, Didn't feel luxurious. That, no, that's the measure of it. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I'd watched the films about filmmaking and it all, you know, and you'd have the director going, oh, the scene is not working. Right, lunch, everybody. And then they'd all go and they'll come back and they will stage it in a different way. I mean, I've yet to have this experience of <laughs> the control of and, and of time, you know, just to be able to go, oh, it's just oh, not feeling it today. You know, yeah. it's still all like bang, bang, bang. Oh, the stopwatch. Oh, Christ. And then when you're reading books, film books, and you're hearing about these, these shoots seem to go on forever that they used to do in the past. And I don't quite know, even though this was 10 weeks, I think it felt every day felt like an uphill struggle. It was too, it was complicated. It's in a lot of different locations. So it's a lot of restrictions and getting get ins and get outs. So mm -hmm. Um, talking about locations, obviously Mandalay is a huge sort of character in itself in this film, and you didn't find one house. You you made this out of six, um, lots of different sort of period properties. Um, why did you do that, and and what were you trying to achieve with that sort of mixture of houses? Well, we we um, we realised we wouldn't find one location that would fit it, that we wouldn't 
and that the 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 actual Mandalay itself doesn't exist. You know, it's it, 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 the way it's described is too grand, I think, for any one house. Um, all the houses that it were based on, it was based on, had been um, upgraded in the fifties or changed, or you know, it was never it, it was never going to be right. And also that that Demaria herself had had written the, it, thinking about a house that she visited as a kid, so it's even bigger. You know, the proportions are all completely wrong because she's mm. she was little. So that that led us to kind of try and kind of Frankenstein it together from lots of different houses, um, that, which meant we could get the most the most extreme in terms of production value um uh, but also that the house from our research a lot of these houses are higgledy-piggledy anyway of different architectural styles and wrapped around themselves in you know Mm. as as each generation built an extra bit or a wing or whatever so that 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 all fitted but it made the production slightly hellish i must admit you know it's kind of you know and complicated in terms of where you were scene to scene and how you go through doors and and all that but i had um onset um john amos the editor was was with me all the time and we cut as we shot so all right okay that, which is something i brought over from free fire where i edited my, uh, on myself when i was on set and it and it makes a very it makes a strong unit when you've got someone like um anita christie as well who's the script super and the editor and we all mm-hmm. sit in the tent and we look at the stuff coming in and we have those discussions that would usually happen with john and i two months later in yeah. an edit suite going oh christ whoa whoa whoa, whoa. Where, where is that does, does he pick up the bag there or does he put it down there but then you've got the voice of the script super in that mix um which which kind of basically sort of turbocharges that role i think so that you the script super is in the in the edit effectively yeah and it means you can you can take a lot more risks than you would do normally you 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 can you can start to call it in terms of single shot stuff or, or um, quite Spartan coverage. Hmm. Um, another question from Paul Wilkins, who says, um, what was the most challenging or the most rewarding sequence to direct from the film? Um, I think challenging wise was the bringing the boat out of the sea, which was a misery to shoot, to be honest, because it was, I, I, I should have known because I've done I, I, a couple of years ago, I shot a load of ads on the, on uh, on a beach, which I thought would be fun. And it's just, just <laughs> terrible. And I'll put a pen through any scene set on the beach from now on, I think, but it, it, it the tide is a brute and it will just, you know, it's just no surprise to anyone. And it shouldn't have been a surprise to me that it does come in and it goes out and, and it's, does not care what you're up to so that boat thing was just a nightmare and we built a ramp for it to come in the 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 sea was completely flat and it was just horrible um and missed missed the first tide and then had to wait all the way around for the second tide to come in um and i knew i was in trouble because i could see out the corner of my eye like to reference hitchcock it's like the birds basically but it was it was producers like i looked around and there was one and then i looked back there was two and then there was three and four and five looking at the watch yeah we're just sweating going oh my god this is one of the most expensive days and you've just nosed it really badly on the hat so that that was horrible but the um the thing i like the most i think the the one i enjoyed on a purely directing level was the um the favel scene in the library where with sam riley and the and the the whole blackmail plot thing and that was a uh, you know the in in terms of we laid down a um a dance floor and had a 
in, and the camera movement was very it was all planned but then it was quite organic and on the day as well moved the actors and so but it was such a great thing of going from like a storyboards the camera plan to to rehearsal to to shoot um something very complicated and it came together very quickly on the day and everyone you know we really enjoyed it and then when when i cut it it just went we went you know cut really really smoothly so that was that was one of the best bits for me and that scene feels quite sort of of its time as well sort of 30s melodrama doesn't it it's sort of people yeah. talking to each other and quick cuts and things well it's that thing of like it's it's the blocking of of people moving and pivoting and kind of mm -hmm. coming from one side coming from each shot has two or three shots in it so they come from deep frame to close yeah. to back and then and then move around you know all that that stuff and that that is something i brought from doing strange angel because there was a lot of that in in that, and I, and I feel t for for my money, that's the next step on for me. You know, it's like handheld stuff. You do get though, you can block it like that, um, and that that kind of um, groupings of like from from singles to twos to threes and out back out again, and and that, that kind of invisible camera work, um, which you see a little bit in some of the other the early films I did, but to to actually do it as a it, um, with grip is much harder you know and yeah. um, it and it's taken a level of confidence gaining confidence for using the equipment which is to taken um, years you know and uh, and I, but I think it's the big game when I look at I, I look at if there's any influence there it's more looking at Spielberg stuff and trying to unpack the shot the Spielberg shots which are also effortless it seems Mm. And, a, and a nightmare and they're in very difficult to, you know I watch them watch the Spielberg movies a lot and they're very difficult to unpack because you just end up watching the films yes you can't help it. you just oh, oh, oh and then half an hour's gone by oh god I was supposed and to you're be... weeping <laughs> but I, tend, <laughs> I don't I do that thing of like I watch stuff without the sound on or I or I, I've, re, I've done reverse I've storyboarded back from films to look at just the technicals of how they're doing it. But the other one I've done in the past is recut the film. So you take the scene and then you cut it into its component shots and you join it all back together where they've done coverage and stuff. And you can actually start to understand often how little they've shot. Right. And certainly I've done, when I've done that with Terminator and it's just shocking. He's, he's, there's barely any shots in Terminator and it, but it's just, just the power of it. He knows exactly where, you know, how little you need to get through a scene or scenes that feel really choppy there's like three shots or four shots in them yeah let's talk about a couple of other shots because um and music choices as well the ball scene is very sort of psychedelic and has this folk tune over it um and and the camera is very sort of um moving everywhere and following mrs dwinter um why did you decide to do that like that and sort of um take it really quite modern in that sequence I mean, in the book, it's a bit like that. I mean, the the, the there's a wooziness of this of that sequence and the repetition of that sequence, and it's quite I, I felt it's quite dreamlike. Mm. Um, I wanted the film to kind of compress on top of her at that point, um, and the house itself was, and the history of the De Winter family and the history of of uh, Britain really, um, and you see all the people the the fancy dress theme is the historical characters um, but then they're also obsessed with Rebecca and stuff so it's it, it that that was part of it and and also to try and get to that feeling of what she feel she's feeling and 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 communicate that to the audience and and that that kind of swirling panic and horror was 
seemed to suit that that style um but i think it's also that kind of trying to find sense like an, an a second sense out of something that it, it's it's not rational you know it's kind of um the the kind of kaleidoscopic dropping of images which are which are panicking you in a way as you try mm -hmm. to unpack them one after the other is trying to get to her sense of her how she feels yeah. Also, the other thing in that scene is the, the sort of image of the woman in the red dress that Rebecca has a form in this film. Obviously, we don't see her as we don't in the book and we don't in Hitchcock or any of the other versions. But you have put this sort of idea of her in there from the opening sequence with I, I dreamt I went to Mandalay. She, there's a sort of figure in front of us. There's also her in the party. Scene, and then we actually do see her body come out of the sea. Was that important to sort of... Was that something you felt modern audiences needed to sort of see to grasp onto her? No, I mean, I, it was important not to see her face. Yes. That's for sure, because you project your own projection of what the most beautiful creature in the world is, is different from everyone's is different. And, and you don't want to put a pin on it and go, it's this. And the audience goes, yeah, that, that's not that. That's not what I'm thinking, you know. So um, but I think that that because she's so present in the book, to the second music to winter that it, it, it made our lives easier as part of that kind of because we're in a visual medium you got it, it felt like you had to see it mm. or see see her thinking about it not necessarily right. see the actual person so it represents an idea of what she might be but not not the whole yeah. package yeah there's also um the sort of quite striking shot with the fourth wall break at the end of the film yeah. um where you're actually sort of engaging with the audience straight down the lens. What was the thought process of that? And what were you hoping audiences would take away from it? Well, I've always enjoyed that. And I think, and I've used it a lot, to be honest. Um, mm. And I think I got it originally. I felt, I, I started, the first time we used it was in Sightseers, I think with Steve Oram looking at the yeah. camera. And I think I'd seen um, Come and See, the Ellen Klimov movie which is quite a leap from come and see to sightseers admittedly, mm. but it's like the, um, but that idea that, that, they, that it's so intimate that you're there with them and they're, and they, and you're sharing a secret and the whole film is a secret. Everything's a secret in, in films in general, but in mm. specifically in Rebecca and that you start to, you start to feel that they're, they're human beings inside of a trap rather than, actors playing a role I don't know that's what I feel about it anyway and I saw and when she and that on the day I was just asked her to do that to Lily to do that and it was it, it just starts to it's a bit like the the morality rug pull of of um uh the winter admitting he doesn't uh, that he hated Rebecca and he murdered her but this is the next one down the line which is oh are there alternate uh, is she thinking other things that we didn't realize she was thinking what are those things we just don't know and then and then we're out you know and i think that 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 helps to kind of just keep the audience guessing and keep the, the character fleshed out you know mm. yeah um because she is sort of an unreliable narrator in the book so that sort of gives you alternative versions that maybe she's a gold digger is that the sort of idea that we take our own i don't know i mean inside I, ourselves when we, we we see that shot i think there's just like options Right. I, I think Gold Digger is too easy, but it's more like she could, oh, she thinks things that we don't know. Oh, yeah. shit. Because otherwise you get too chummy with characters often. I remember, I remember when we were doing High Rise, there was a whole thing where Tom Middleton's character is given a note and he looks at the note and 
um, and then another scene happens. We had all this trouble, all these note, literal notes from from um, film four. I think it was going. What's on the note? What's on the note? And um, I'm talking to Amy Jump about it, and she's going, "Well, you got to have you got to have some secrets from the audience, right? You got to hold stuff back because it makes the characters more interesting." And I was like, "Oh yeah, I like that. That you just don't know. And we didn't know what had been written on it, and he'd written something, and we never saw it." And and I think that's that's part of that kind of strategy of going. You don't know. She could be doing anything, and that makes her more interesting. You know. Mm. Um, speaking of executives, there's a question here from Nick Shaw, who says, um, "Looking back through the films of yours, there's horror and black comedy. How do you instill or convince stakeholders or execs about an ind- idiosyncratic tone before a frame has been shot? Have you got any interesting stories about trying to paint a picture to an unimaginative listener?" trying to sell well, I, them on your vision well i mean often like if you look at all the films i've done most of them are rook productions so yeah. and i own the company with andy stark and amy jump so i i don't have many people to convince you know um and usually when we're making stuff we're already down the road of making it and then and then we get investors come in uh, or financiers come in and they usually understand what the film is going to be by that point so there's never a i'm I've never been in the unfortunate position of trying to fit a kind of quirky thing to us to, you know, round peg in a square hole kind of thing. Um, On this, on this, it was, I think they were, um, you know, I'd been asked to do it because they wanted it to be like a film that I'd make. But it wasn't the other way around. It wasn't like they, you know, I'd I'd come along and they would go, oh, how are we going to make him stop being weird? (laughs) it was like it was like can we make can he be more weird you know so I think that's the that that's what it is I mean I I I, you know sometimes we have you know there's difficult I've been more bullish I think with the other movies when we've been when they've been rook productions and we've been you know but because they're lower budget so you can get away with it yeah I mean I remember on kill list there were you know and a lot of the movies early on we we basically wouldn't even show them to the financiers until they were finished. So it wasn't like, oh, here's the rough cut. What do you think, guys? It was mm. all like, always like, oh, we've done all the effects and the, and the score. Here's the film. And people would go, oh, God. Um, and we go, aha, it's done. We spent all the money. So, you know, I think, <laughs> but that works when you're doing low budget stuff. Um, and it becomes harder. It's a di- different type of thing i mean i think that as you as you go up the budget levels and i think it's like there's responsibility to you know it's much more of a group um decision there's more group decision making when you're when you're dealing in tens of millions or 20s of millions of of dollars you know um but uh but but it's partially why i like jumping back to low budget as well because that's but that's more like you know and i think of it now as the kind of you do the you do the acoustic set and then you do the the bigger album and you come back and forth and you're allowed, you know, and, and you just, you scratch that particular itch and then you go back and do something else. Um, but I think, and I've always said that it's like, there's different, um, there's, uh, with di- there's different genres, obviously of film, but there's different genres of production and the different, yeah. the different genres of production are, have totally different structures within them in the same way that TV and advertising do. And, uh, low no budget cinema low budget cinema or low budget no budget ultra low budget low budget yeah. normal budget and then hollywood style budgets are all have all different structures of, of who you have to deal with basically yeah 
Yeah. Are you someone who sort of believes in director's cuts? Are you someone who thinks that you might revisit something you've made previously and provide a different version for the audience? No, I mean, I, I've been lucky and I don't, I've mostly had final cut contractually and, uh, but also I've produced them as well, de facto, because I own the production company. Yeah. So I, I do get the, I do get the final cut. Um, and certainly on something like High Rise, yeah, there was a lot of pressure to cut it down and we didn't. Mm. Um, this was different. Rebecca was different because we screen tested it, which I'd only done once before with Free Fire. Right. But there's the screen testing. And again, coming from an indie film background, I was I'd been nervous about screen testing for a long time, you know, but then I found it really useful when I did it because it, it well, because it allowed. It allowed you to say to to break through like types of thinking that I never would have brought broken through. I knew there was there you know when we tested it originally there was bits of it that were maybe a bit long, but I couldn't put my finger on where it was because I liked it all too much. Right. And when the audience just go, it's there, and you go right, it's the soggy middle, right? Boom, that's done. <laughs> and we know, and we can move really quickly now. And when you've got a lot of people saying it, you just kind of go, well, there's no arguing with this. And it's because it's, and also because it's for a specific audience. You know, it's it's, it's got to hit that kind of. Um, larger audience so you you can't ignore what their opinions are of things and things that you take for granted in your storytelling of being very clear you know I'd have these kind of conversations go but he said it he said it out loud loud he said it twice why don't they understand and it's like it's not their fault yeah <laughs> no it's never yeah. Their they're fault. not getting it so you have to change it exactly yeah but with a with with a an indie movie where the audience is different you kind of go well I don't care if they don't get it <laughs> and and it's that's yeah. the audience it's going for and it's a specific thing and you could never you can never argue I remember having a conversation about um field in England where where, where an exec had said if you if you put more shots or wide shots in the beginning of the movie this will be more commercial I'm like it's field in England <laughs> it's not it's about it's about like it's a black and white film about the English Civil War it's yeah. never going to be commercial it'll find an audience but it that changing it because you think it's going to make money is madness mm. And, you know, and so those those are the, the things, really. Which leads on to a question that um, came in as well about editing. Um, this is the first of your films you haven't edited yourself. So what was the experience like of working with an editor on this? Were you like, get off, I'm doing it? <laughs> well, I, I would. Um, I would edit as well. Yeah. And what how I would do it, because the thing I've always found about editing with someone else is I feel is an efficiency problem for me, which is I don't want to explain myself to someone when I could just do it. Right. And that yeah. just takes so long. And I'm like, ah, oh, why am I wasting my time when I could just do it? And da -da. But obviously there's other things you're missing when you do it like that, which is the skill of the editor. So what the, ha the happy medium was that the happy halfway house was that I'd cut rough cut stuff up and then I would show it to John Amos and he'd go oh okay I can do something with this and then and then so there was a filter between me and the um uh, between me and production but it meant that also that I could I didn't have to I, I could um sketch it rather than having to refine it so we worked through ideas really quickly like that so yeah. and I think for the first couple of months of the edit I was just in another room just cutting you know and just cutting on my own and then I'd bring it through to John and and we'd um audition it and kind of like oh okay and then we'd have multiple and, the, and I think this is the I think and sometimes I feel that when I'm cutting my own stuff I'm pretty 
um, dogmatic and I won't change it. I just won't because I don't want to. And, you know, it's tough luck. Um, <laughs> and I think it, that was not an attitude that was going to fly with this. So it was um, uh, it was useful to have someone who'd come from a background of uh, of that culture of, of, of editing and, and changing stuff a lot over time and just keep yeah. going, keep going. And John's got, you, you know, completely... Um, uh, infatigable you know he's got endless energy and and good humor which I don't you know so it's kind of I could just give him tasks and and we go back and forth so it wasn't a traditional like sitting in the back in the sofa drinking a beer as the editor <laughs> work it was much more yeah. like Julian Banjo's but then but my my actual hand on the uh, on the splice never made it none of none of my actual cuts really made it into the movie but that but the idea of it did you know and I felt that and, and I felt it was really good and I really enjoyed it and I think that it but then I've subsequently shot another movie which I've cut myself so it's not like I'm uh, you know I will never go back you know I think it but it, it, it I, I could certainly see a way through it that made more sense but I think that's to do mainly with getting older and being a, and growing up a bit and not being such a um a sod <laughs> um has sort of rebecca and, and the sort of genre of this film scratched an itch is there is are you somebody who wants to try a bit of everything and are, are there sort of genres that you want to have a go at? i mean you're you're doing meg 2 next uh which is completely different again what's the sort of decision process of taking projects on um yeah it's that it's like it, it, it it's i kind of try and do whatever i fancy and that's one of the things it's either got to be really it's it's very it's important for it to be different from the last film, but also something I go, oh my god, I never thought I would have I'd do that. And right. I had that with Meg Two just turned up and I went, Meg Two? Come on, that's, that's brilliant. Oh my god, I love the Meg. Giant so shark. It, it, it's uh uh you know, and and I think that and that's what I did with Doctor Who, you know, I wasn't it wasn't offered Doctor Who. I had to send my agent out to get it, you know, and I said and it took two or three years of badgering them and going, oh, you know, this guy, you know, he wants to do it. And they go, oh, who's he? He's done nothing. You know, and over time, I, my profile got bigger. And then eventually, I think it was Sightseers that did it. They saw Sightseers and they went, oh, yeah, that, we need, we like humour. That's good. Maybe. Mm. And, I, and I'd had a background in doing effects work in um, adverts and online stuff. So yeah. that, that, those two things got me that job, you know. Um, but it was a pursued it because I liked Doctor Who, not because I was a jobbing director. It just it came yeah. up as a thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that it, it keeps it fresh to jump about, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, do you think it's important to be able to do all of those different genres as well as a director, um, rather than just stay in one particular lane? I don't know. I mean, I think over time, I'll probably it'll probably be a thing where you just look at all the films and they're the same, because that's that's how it works in the end. But I mean, because the thing that's the same in all the the things that joins all the movies together is me. You know, yeah. I'm the I'm the thing that the common denom denominator, and my taste keeps coming through these things. So, um, but uh, I think it's yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I think I think that if the main reason I've been able to do lots of different stuff is because I've had my own production company and, and have either written or co-written stuff and originated it. So you, you have more of a chance then than if you're just um, get scripts are turning up, you know, so is, is that what you'd sort of recommend to somebody starting out that they try to find that sort of level of autonomy in order to make what they want? 
um, I think that the if you can make low budget films, you can make a lot of films. I think if you look at the budgets of all the films I've done, the first four movies will probably fit quite neatly into most people's first film budget, feature right. film budget, yeah. or more, or more. You know, um, I was going to ask just finally. Um, you know, you, you have this sort of attitude. Oh, here, what else would you most like to direct? Well. Of the big genre stuff, I guess there's um, sci-fi and some kind of space opera thing or a cowboy movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I wrote a cowboy movie in lockdown, so I don't know. That and might I, be next. I've, I've shot um, pop promos in Almeria and stuff, so I'm quite a fan of, of, of Spain and the Spaghetti Western stuff. So, yeah, that 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 would be of the big ticket stuff that's that's up there i think a rom a rom-com or um or a kids film as well at some point okay Interesting. so yeah i mean i, I don't know i mean it, it i guess i mean i'm draw i'm i'm kind of doing comics as well and i think that might be the way to get through this some of this stuff so i do i'm kind of working on a on a sci-fi comic with a mate of mine and that 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 starts to get towards it a little bit yeah, um, someone's suggesting you do Cowboys versus Aliens too. That seems to cover off Cowboys and sci-fi and perhaps a children's film. So there you go. Pretty good, yeah. And then finally, just to end on, um, what's your favourite film of the last two years? I think that's probably of somebody else's. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can choose your own. Um, but what's your, been your favourite film of the last two years? Uh, 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 an Evening with Beverly Loughlin. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's good and weird. <laughs> um brilliant okay well i think that's probably it for this evening thank you so much for your time and your insight ben um no worries it's been... a shame not to see everyone's faces i know um there's sitting no in the way, room. Isn't it? i've done one of these where there's like a thousand people just there just in tiny boxes what it's that's crazy and you can many. see them going to the loo and stuff they all go and get bored and yeah stand around in their bedrooms and stuff it's pretty good it's good it's good to see people that they're there but then, then everyone becomes, it's like the panopticon, isn't it? And they're all terrified that you're watching them, I think. And you Looking get at that their quick, houses. Quick zoom face, don't you? Kind of go, <laughs> you know. So I think that that would be why people wouldn't do it. But um, but yeah, I think it, it was pretty interesting. I was swiping along, just like loads and loads of people just all, all there. And it's a bit it's a bit more like what the normal chats would be like back in back in the day when we were allowed out of our houses. Yeah, hopefully we'll be getting back to those again <laughs> post-Christmas, maybe. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.